What makes a man great? What makes a man great? And there's a lot of answers for this. The world might say that a man is great based on his strength, on his power, on what he's able to do, done, what he's able to do in taking decisive action and getting something done. We all want something done, and if a man can do it, then he's a great man. The church might have a little different answer. The church might say, a man is great based on his kindness, based on his love, based on how much he knows the world. And the church might say, that's what makes a man great. But the Bible, the Bible's actually going to say a very different answer still. The Bible's going to tell us that a man is not great. A man will never be great because the Lord is the one who is great. And the great man is the one who waits on the Lord. And so today we discuss one of Hebrew 11's heroes of the faith, Noah. That the Bible specifically says this is a great man. And he's a great man because of his faith. And he's a great man specifically because of his patience. The, God, God, the aspect God uses to make Noah great is his patience. And that's my question for today. My big question as we're going through this is, how does patience reveal God's greatness? So we'll start with Noah's patience before the storm. Uh, chapter 6, starting verse 9 to 13. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So we learn right away that the Bible says Noah is a just and perfect man. And what it means with that is when he talks about being a just man, that's Noah standing before God. God looked down at Noah and he saw a man in good standing. He was a righteous man because he had faith in God. And it says perfect, that's his standing between man. Other people looked at Noah and saw him as a very nice and very great man as well. They saw a man who was upstanding among men. He had a good standing with God and a good standing with man. But he is not, and we have to remember this, we get to the end especially, he is not perfect as Christ was perfect. He is still a man. He is still a man. And Noah's going to spend the next 100 years of his life making an ark, making a big giant boat. And the next set of verses, I'm not going to read them to you because it's basically the specifications of how this ark should be. And there's a few things we need to notice. There's a few things we notice. First, God only tells him to do this once. God gives him the directions, and then there's no indication that God speaks again for a hundred years. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm trying to make mac and cheese. I throw the directions in the, in the trash, right? And, and three minutes later, I have to go back to the trash and look at it again. It's almost a miracle in and of itself that Noah was able to remember what to do for a hundred years. That Noah was able to just remember that. Because there's no indication that God spoke. It's also important to notice that Noah is never given any more encouragement or any more reinforcement. He's never given a, a, an attaboy or a good job. For a hundred years, it is silent. I'd have to imagine at some point in time, Noah maybe just thought he had had a weird dream. Maybe he had eaten just a weird piece of fish or something. 
But he stays faithful. He stays patient, and he keeps working on this ark, on this big, huge, giant boat. And these exact specifications, we learn that this boat is huge, massive. They've rebuilt it down in Kentucky, and it's just the pictures of it are absolutely astounding. This thing is one and a half football fields long. It's four stories high, and it has the storage capacity of 450 semi-trailers. Absolutely huge boat. And it's meant for flotation, not for navigation. There's no sails, there's no rudder, there's no tiller, there's nothing like that for Noah to be in control at any point in time. It's a big giant box that's going to get lifted up and, and Noah's completely in the Lord's hand. And again, what we see is Noah patiently doing what the Lord has said. He doesn't add a mast. He doesn't add a tiller so he can have some kind of control. He does what the Lord says. He patiently trusts that God's plan is the best. That God knows what he's talking about. He doesn't add or take away anything from these specifications. No, or God then brings Noah animals. And again, we can see some patience here as Noah patiently cares for these animals without ever hearing God again. All of a sudden, there's these crazy animals start showing up. Stuff that Noah's probably never even seen before. And Noah patiently starts taking care of them. In fact, what we see in verse 22, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. Again, repeated. A repetition. Noah did what was told of him. Noah did what was asked of him. So before the storm, as Noah patiently waited before the storm, what we see is that God prepared Noah. He prepared him. He provided all the resources Noah would need. All of this wood, all of these animals, all of the work that he would need, God gave it to Noah. He prepared him in ways that we could not even imagine. I'd imagine he was also preparing him for a year on a boat stuck with his family. Preparing him in ways that we can't even imagine. And the question we have to ask ourselves at this point in time, do we patiently wait for what God is giving us? Are we willing to be patient before the storm and wait on the Lord? And i got to be honest with you, I struggle with this, probably more than anyone else in here. I always want the next thing. I always want to get to the next thing. God, I've done this. Okay, I'm done with this. Let's go to the next thing. Okay, God, we did this. Let's go to the next thing. Let's go, God. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And you've got to be patient. You've got to stop. And I have to stop myself we have to stop ourselves and we have to remind ourselves that God is in control. God's plan is perfect and we need to be patient because he is preparing us in ways that we don't even understand. Now we go to Noah's patience during the storm. Chapter 7, let's read the entire thing, verses 1 through 16. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. 
Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass, after seven days, that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wives, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two of all flesh, and which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And you see this repetition of Noah being faithful and doing what God has said. It's repeated because this is such a big deal. Notice first, notice first, God speaks again. It's been a hundred years of silence, and then God speaks again. He tells them, okay, now it's time to get on the boat. Now it's time to get on the ark. Noah was patiently waiting until God said it was time, and then he got on. And what surprised me when, when I noticed it, when it was pointed out to me, when I read my commentaries, he tells them to get on the boat, and then he makes them wait seven more days. A whole other week of waiting, of sitting there. Now, in that period of time, I have to imagine Noah was just a ball of worry and fret. It, it, it's been a hundred years. I just spent everything I have, did everything I asked of me, and I've been on this ark. God told me to get here, and now I'm just sitting here. Got a bunch of animals. I imagine his wife's not super happy with him. I mean, I try to put up something in my house, and after three minutes, my wife's mad at me, right? This has been a hundred years of this project. His wife's probably frustrated. His kids are frustrated. Where's this rain, Dad? Where is it? You said it was coming. Where is it? Why isn't it here yet? Another week of waiting. In fact, I'd also imagine the rest of the world was laughing at him, was mocking him for this. Look at this big giant boat. Look at this guy. What's he, there's not a cloud in the sky. This guy's nuts. And he's being mocked, and he's being ridiculed, laughed at repeatedly for a whole nother week that he sits on this boat. But what is God doing? God is giving the world one last chance to repent. God is giving people one more chance to wake up, realize what's coming, and to get on the boat with Noah. That door was open the whole time. He's giving them one more chance. And I think we see this a lot in our own lives and in the Bible. God often has us do a whole lot of work and then stop and rest and wait. Once again, be patient for him. His timing is perfect. His plan is perfect. And again, there is no indication that God speaks again. God will not speak until the end of the storm now. There is no indication that God speaks again. Noah patiently waits for the Lord. He patiently waits, no matter how difficult and how hard that has to be, and it has to be difficult. But God, 
at this point in time, has given the people 120 years to repent. 120 years to come back to their senses, to realize what they've done is wrong, and to turn back to the Lord. And verse 16, I'm going to go back to that and point it out one more time. So those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God commanded them. And the Lord shut him in. The Lord shuts the door. The Lord. At this point in time, God is done being patient. God is done waiting. Judgment is at hand. And it happens just that quickly. At the end of a random week, at some point in time, it's over. This is the closest parallel we have to end times. Where at some point in time, we don't know when, no one knows when, at some point in time, God will be done waiting. And decisions will be made. And you will either be in that boat through the blood of Jesus Christ, or you will be outside of that boat where no good thing is about to happen. This is the closest parallel we have. And right up to that last very moment, when God shut that door, I imagine the entire time they were still laughing at Noah. And I imagine Christians will be mocked until the very end, when God has had enough. And he shuts the door. It's important that God shut the door. It's important that that's in here, because God is the one who provides the salvation. God is the one who provides the protection. Noah and his family cannot protect themselves. They cannot provide for themselves. They cannot save themselves. It is the Lord who provides our salvation. He protected Noah and his family. In fact, again, I'm going to go back to that ark that's been rebuilt in Kentucky. If you've seen pictures of it, on their door, on the door of the ark, there's a big cross. There's a big cross. Because we have an ark as well. And God is shutting that door. But we get on that ark through the blood of Jesus Christ. We get salvation. We get the protection through Christ's work on the cross. But eventually God shuts that door. Time is up. You've made your decision. It's over. Now the impact of the flood cannot be overstated in the world of science. In the world of archaeology and geology, Noah's flood changes everything. Everything that scientists look at and go, well, this had to have taken billions of years, basically was because of this great flood. This accounts for everything. Most cultures that we've studied, that we have found in that, throughout all of the world, throughout all of history, have a flood myth. About 95% of them all claim in their history that some kind of flood happened. All the stories are a little different, but there always seems to be a flood myth. In fact, it's rarer to find a culture without a flood myth than to find one with a flood myth. Every culture has a flood myth. That's odd. That's a weird thing to happen all over the place, everywhere in the world. Everyone has a flood myth. That says something weird. Geology. Anywhere you go on the world, you can find fossils of sea creatures. And, and people tell you, well, because billions of years ago, the whole world was an ocean. Now it's because a few thousand years ago, God made the, the water go everywhere. That, prove that, that answers that question. Right? So even something as simple like uh, the Grand Canyon. The world will tell you, well, that says lots of times, billions of years in a little bit of water. No, 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 no. That's tons and tons of water in a little bit of time. 
It still works out the same way. We can see these things happen with volcanoes and the ash that are left. Answers in Genesis has a really cool video about dinosaur fossils. And I didn't know this, but apparently they find dinosaur fossils for some reason all in a line in the middle of large masses of land. As though the dinosaurs were trying to run away or get away from something. As though they were trying to seek higher ground. As though they were being chased by the floodwaters. And for some reason, all over the world, you see these dinosaur fossils almost in a straight line as they try to get away from something chasing them. Water rising. An ice age. A single volcano erupting in today's world can change the world's climate. A single volcano can shut down the sun and cause huge amounts. Imagine every volcano in the world all going off at once and what that can do to the climate. Noah's flood cannot be overstated. It, it's probably the single most important thing that explains why the world is the way it is. But apart from that, no matter the situation outside, no matter what is going on outside, Noah and his family are safe. They are in the ark. They are protected by God. And I'd imagine, again, Noah didn't always feel that way. This had to be pretty scary. 40 days and 40 nights of, of, of pretty hard wind, of volcanoes erupting and coming up with all this water. That's scary, but no matter how they felt, they were safe with God. He trusted and he waited patiently with God. And again, I'm going to say this again because I keep saying it. God doesn't speak for the entire year. For an entire year, he tells them to get on the boat and then he's quiet. Do it or don't. And Noah did it. Noah spends one year and 17 days on the ark, a total of 382 days on the boat. 382 days. And I'll point out something interesting here. For those of you who are interested in this kind of stuff, I've been pointing out this Revelation end time stuff, so I got another one here. Look at verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 4. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. So this is, again, cool for those who are interested. So the Jewish calendar is actually split into two parts. You have a civil calendar and a religious calendar. And depending on which calendar you use, it's either Nisan or Tishra, or the two months. Now that's interesting because Nisan, I believe, right? Nisan is around April, Passover, Easter. So it's either an Easter, when Jesus came and did his work on the cross, or it's Tishra, which is the Feast of Trumpets. And the Feast of Trumpets is connected with Christ's second coming. So you have this weird parallel again of end times stuff. There's a lot of evidence as you go through this that Christ's second coming could possibly be in September. September's coming. It's a lot, maybe, right? The Feast of Trumpets. Christ's second coming is marked by trumpets. There will be a great trumpet in the sky. All right? Uh, again, if we want to understand Revelation, let's study a little bit of creation. God parallels himself. Okay, that's cool if you're interested in that. Otherwise, let's get back to Noah. During the storm, what we see is that God protects Noah. Noah is able to be patient and wait out an entire year in this boat, and God protects Noah. When we do God's work, he protects us. He looks out for us. He is with us. It may not always seem like it. We may not always feel like it. 
but we can rest assured he is with us. And we can take a great comfort in knowing that no matter what happens on earth, we are protected by our Heavenly Father. This is where the great line from Psalm 23 comes from. Psalm 23, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. With me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This earth is the, shadow, the, the valley of the shadow of death. But we are protected. We're looked after by God. He is with us. He protects us, not in a big giant ark, but with his son, Jesus Christ. Through his son's blood, we can rest assured knowing we are well taken care of amidst the problems, amidst the storms of this world. So Noah spends an entire year on this boat, and now we see Noah after the storm. Uh, chapter 8, verses 15 through 19. Then God spoke to Noah. He speaks again. This is the third time here. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing in all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons rise with him, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. So what we see and we start with Noah again waiting, this time waiting to get off the boat. At this point in time, Noah has sent out the birds, right? He sent out the raven, they sent out the dove. He's got the ark landed on Mount Ararat. He's opened the door, and he sees dry land, and he waits. Instead of rushing out, kissing the land, oh, thank God, I'm glad. Instead of, you know, getting away from his family, he, he waits on the boat until God says, okay, now you can get off. Now you can get off. And what we have next is God's covenant. We have this really interesting back and forth between kind of what God is going to do and what Noah is going to do. And God starts making more promises to man. Starts giving us more promises to show that he loves us. So he starts with a covenant with all of creation. All of creation. Chapter 8, verse 21. Chapter 8, verse 21. And the Lord smelled a smoothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. There will be no more, no additional curse added into this. There should be. Every imagination of man's heart is evil, but God's not going to curse the ground more. The curse that happened, it's already there. That's the same way it is, that's the same way it is now. There's curses still there, but God's not going to add to it. He's not going to add to our curse. In fact, what he gives us is verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. Nothing, nothing will ever stop the earth from turning, from the seasons happening, from harvest, from day and from night. Those will continue. God gives us this promise that we can trust in him day by day one day at a time. We get to live for God one day at a time. Because he's promised us there will be another morning. There will be another season. Those will not end. We may not always be here. We may not always be here. But the earth will continue. It will go 
forward. All these doomsday speakers who are out there talking about how the earth is going to end and all this, not until the Lord says it will. Not until it's His plan to do so. He promised us uh, one day at a time, the next day, this day, today. And then Noah is given a part of the covenant. This is how covenants work. God will do something. We are supposed to do something. And man is usually really bad about keeping up his part of the covenant. Right? So he's told in chapter 9, verse 1, So God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, have children. Children are a blessing. Continue to live. Continue to go forth. Subdue the earth. Spread out. Take over what I've given you. Don't stay in one place. Specifically, don't recreate Enoch. Don't do that again. We already did it once. It didn't work. Do something different. And, of course, man is going to do the next thing and recreate Enoch in about five minutes, right? All right. So then verse 2 and 4. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and all that fish in the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. So man, which was once a gardener in the perfect garden, became a toiler because, because of the sin, has now become a hunter. Man can now eat meat. That's a good thing. We get to you know, eat bacon, things like that. That's awesome. Right? We can now eat meat. Man... Animals now fear man. They will run from us. Somehow before that it didn't work. I don't know. It's a neat thing to think about. But animals now fear man. But it's important to notice that we can't eat blood. Life is in the blood. This is still one of the first covenants, one of the first things that God marks. In fact, the uh, first Christians in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council make the same decision. Don't eat blood. That shouldn't be news to us. Typically in the Western world, we don't eat a whole lot of blood. That tends to do with occult worship. It has to do with disease. It could be any number of reasons. All we have to know is that God said, don't do it, and we shouldn't do it. And again, most of us don't because this is where that started. Right? Uh, he also gives us something interesting in verses 5 and 6. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of every man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So as animals fear man, man should fear God, and only God has the right to take human life. What he's done here is basically create the first government, the first law. You have no right to murder someone. If you murder someone, you have a penalty. Your life is also now forfeit. He's given us the first law of human government. Don't murder each other. And finally, enjoy life. Enjoy life. I'm going to go down to uh, 11. Verse 11. If I can find it. Oh, Thus I established my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living thing that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. He tells Noah, Enjoy life. Enjoy life. Go out and live. 
You don't have to worry about a flood again. I promise I will never destroy the world again. Again, man deserves it, but God will be patient and wait for us. God will be patient. He will never flood the earth. And he gives a visual witness to this promise. A rainbow. And I know after it rains, I'm always looking for one. I hope you guys do too. Now the rainbow can be super symbolic. We can go into all kinds of symbols with this. I'm only going to look at one thing because we don't want to get too symbolic with this. We tend to become allegorical and it just gets weird. But if we look at verse 16, we look at verse 16 again, we can see something kind of interesting. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God says he looks at it too. So when there's a storm, after a storm, we go out, we see a rainbow, God is looking at that rainbow as well. That rainbow acts as a bridge between us and God. He looks on it and he remembers his promise for us. It's a bridge between man and God. And I thought that was pretty cool. And again, what we see here is God showing concern for all living creatures. All living creatures. I'm going to show you something again interesting for those who are interested in it. He mentions four creatures, four creatures that have come off the ark with Noah. Uh, Cattle, wild beasts, birds, and man. Four creatures. And what's interesting is that those four creatures are later represented in Ezekiel by the angels with four faces. You have the four faces, you have an ox, you have a lion, you have an eagle, and you have a man. The same four creatures, a wild beast, cattle, a bird, and man. So, again, an interesting parallel for those who are interested in it. But let's focus on Noah. Right, we see after the flood, what we see after the flood, oh, those four faces are in Ezekiel 1, sorry. Right, after the flood, God promises Noah. God promises Noah. He, Noah right? he tells Noah, you can take life one day at a time. You can be trust, you can be faithful, and you can trust the Lord to keep his promises one day at a time. And Noah has the patience to start to rebuild, to rebuild the world, to rebuild what was before, and hopefully better. And unfortunately, this is where he starts to have problems. Because the last thing we have to talk about here is that Noah falters. Noah stumbles. Chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. And Noah began to be a farmer. He planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. So, some commentaries will argue that Noah didn't know what wine was. I've seen that argument. I've heard it. I I think that's a little silly. He he purposely grew grapes. He purposely processed them to their juice. He purposely stored them and then gave them time to ferment. To not think that he knew what alcohol was or to not think that he knew what wine was is probably a little little narrow-sighted. I think a better understanding is pretty much basic human nature. First of all, remember, Noah is still a flawed human being. He's still a man. All men are flawed. And all men in the Bible have a moment of weakness. Except for Jesus, but that doesn't count. All right, all normal men in the Bible have a moment of weakness. And this happens to be Noah's. And these stories are in here for a reason. We tell this about Noah for a purpose, because men fall. Right? He had seen... If we look at human nature, he had seen his entire world destroyed. His whole family, everyone everyone he knew is gone. They're dead. And in fact, he had just spent a year 
trapped in a boat with his wife and kids. If you've ever been on a road trip with a wife who makes you miss the turnoff on the George Washington Bridge and then freaks out at you for the entire day because you're lost in New York, I think we'd understand that Noah probably needed a drink at this point in time. <laughs> Just spent an entire year on a boat with his wife and kids. He, he probably needed a drink, and I think we'd all cut him some slack, and we'd understand that. All right. But what we see is that nakedness is often a sign of shame in the Bible. Noah goes too far. He takes this drinking too far. And nakedness is a sign of his shame. This is why it's important, again, we go back to Adam and Eve. They were naked in the garden, but they knew no shame. Here, nakedness means shame. And so Ham, verse 22, verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Ham goes into his father's tent and he mocks him. He makes fun of him. Now, again, I've heard arguments of him doing other things with his father. You can find those arguments out there, but you don't need those arguments. Honor thy mother and thy father is a command, and Ham breaks that command right there. He uncovers his father's shame, and he mocks him, and he laughs at him. Compare that to what Shem and Japheth do, verse 23. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. His other sons give him honor. Right? They don't look at his shame. And they actually live out 1 Peter 4, 8. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Yes, Noah did wrong, but the other two brothers, Shem and Japheth, are able to cover that and forgive him. And this leads to Noah's only words in scriptures, the only time he speaks. He starts with Ham. Uh, verse 25. Then Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. So he actually curses, or he actually predicts the moral corruption of Ham's son, Canaan. Now, Canaan would be, of course, the Canaanites, who the Jews are to later wipe out and remove. And the Jews are to wipe them out and remove them because they were some of the most morally corrupt people to have ever walked to this earth. The things they were doing were absolutely abominable. We would be shocked and flabbergasted and appalled that they were doing these things because they were so morally corrupt. These were evil nations. Evil nations. And they became a servant to their brothers. They served Shem directly because Shem is going to be the line of the Jews. They served Shem directly when they were conquered and then put into forced labor. And they served the world, they served everyone else, by the cities and the ideas and the advanced technology that they were able to create. They become servants, but they are not leaders. In fact, most of them today are long gone. They've been wiped out. But it is important to notice, and I wanted to make sure I said this, because I think you're seeing it come back a little bit. Um, this has nothing to do with ethnicity. This is not an argument endorsing slavery in any way, shape, or form. This has nothing to do with a, a black race or anything like that. Again, you, you see that argument, and it's starting to come back, and you used to see this back with American slavery. The Bible condones slavery. That's not what this is at all. That's not what this is all. This is the moral corruption of the Canaanites who are long gone. I just want to make sure I said that, because people tend to take that the wrong way. 
But next, Noah glorifies Shem's God. He notice, notice he glorifies Shem's God, not Shem, verse 26. Uh, and he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Shem will eventually come to the line of Abraham, which will be the Jewish line, which is how God is able to enter the world and salvation comes from the Jews because the Lord God is of Shem and comes from Shem. And Japheth, verse 27, may God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be his servants. Japheth goes everywhere else. He's enlarged, he goes everywhere. This is the line of the Gentiles. Anyone who's not Canaan and not the Jews comes from Japheth. They spread throughout the world and they're everywhere else, but they need to dwell in Shem's tents because only through Shem and the Jews will they have God. There's a little bit of intricacy here in this prophecy of Noah. Right? Salvation comes from the Jews. The Gentiles need Shem. We need Shem to bring us the Lord. They dwell in Shem's tents. Gentiles need the Jews. And we end the life of Noah with the familiar refrain, verses 28 and 29. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The familiar refrain we've seen before in the other genealogy, and he died. Death still reigns. This was not the end of death. This is the end of Noah. But we know in, we know in Hebrew, Hebrews, excuse me, we know in Hebrews 11.7, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. We know that Noah is still considered righteous. He is still considered a man of great faith. Failures and missteps when we fail to be patient, when we fail to wait on the Lord, when we fail to do what's asked of us, failures and missteps do not remove us from God's love. He still cares for us. He still wants us. He still loves us. Which is what we get out of this one. In his faults, in Noah's faults, God pardons Noah. He forgives him. Just as in our faults and failures, we are forgiven in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who died on the cross for us so that we may have eternal life. Our ark is the blood of Christ, and all are given the chance to repent and be saved. So when we see, in conclusion, when we see the storms as a chance to wait on the Lord, we can know that he is with us. Be known for your patience. John saw God before the storm. Ezekiel saw God in the storm. Noah saw God after the storm. No matter what you are going through, look for the rainbow and know that God is faithful. He will see us through any storm. Let's go to him in prayer.